In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The corporate structure was beginning to disintegrate. There was unrest from people far and wide. The regional leaders of the entity were beginning to wonder if the rumors of the new and current trend were true, even though only a small faction trusted in it. But part of the problem was a small renegade group was going against the directives of their supervisors, were marching to the beat of their own proverbial drums and trying to get others to follow suit. Eventually, things became so bad that the leader of the world had to get involved and summon those in charge to meet with him and figure out this problem. Now, lest we think that this is a story about the financial crisis of 2008 or about the time that the auto executives were summoned up to Washington, D.C., or part of a scandal that rocks the world today, we need to think again. For this is a very brief and very truncated account of the happenings of the year 325. The church was in danger of schism. Priests, namely the heretic Arius, were disobeying their bishops and eventually Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor of the Roman Empire, convened a council at the seaside resort town of Nicaea to figure out questions about the nature of Christ, the prohibition of kneeling in church during the great 50 days of Easter, and what to do with lapsed Christians who had denied Jesus was Lord during the Diocletian persecutions. Nicaea was the first ecumenical council of the church, the first time that most of the bishops of the world and at this time, the number that went is traditionally held at 318, gathered together to discuss and affirm what the truth of the gospel was and how the church should live into it. Out of that council comes a document that is still extremely important to us today and was later revised at the second ecumenical council in 381. We know the document as the Nicene Creed, or more correctly put, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, but we call it the Nicene Creed for convenience. And this creed fleshed out, the second one, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, fleshed out the third section of our current Nicene Creed that we will recite after this sermon. There's much more on that, but that's for another time. St. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in our epistle reading this morning. And if you know anything about that particular church, it was a deeply troubled church. There was problems with the agape meal, which is the meal that happened after the service, kind of like our coffee hour, with all the rich people eating all the food and drinking all the wine, and the poor people were excluded, shut out of the, out of the meal. There was a dissension about speaking in tongues, and not only if it was permissible, if it was proper, but how you do it. The 13th chapter of this letter, which we typically hear at weddings, though I speak with the tongues of mortal men and of angels and hath not love, well, that's not actually about marriage. 
It's about the relationship of the church to her members and the members to the church. And this, if I speak in the tongues of mortal men or angels, it's actually talking about speaking in literal tongues and in the speech of the Spirit. Many of the problems that we read about through both of the Corinthian letters stem from one problem that had arisen after St. Paul's visit. Factions had arisen based on whether they came into the church when Paul was there and when he was there teaching and preaching, or when Apollos, a Jewish man like Paul, who had also become a Christian missionary, it's been a long week, I'll just say that, uh, had also come to the community. And if you read some of the other letters of Paul, we learn that Paul and Apollos held no rivalry between each other. So within this church, what we might now call a parish church, like this one, there was a clear distinction about who was in and who was out, and all because of either when they came into the church, what their date of acceptance was, or by whom they were taught, or even by whom baptized them. What St. Paul sees is not just a dividing up of the parish church, but a dividing up of Jesus. The question could be put, who owns Jesus in this problem? Or perhaps one faction to another could say, we have more of Jesus or more of the Holy Spirit than you do. And when the church is divided, then we are no longer one body in Christ in this world. What Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians is that the question should not be, who is my loyalty to, to Paul, to Cephas, who, is, who we also know as St. Peter, or to Apollos, but rather the firm and abiding conviction that Jesus is Lord. And so the question should be not to whom do I belong, but rather do I belong to Jesus? I told you the story of the Council of Nicaea a few minutes ago. It was the first time that the one church, and, or as we say in our creed, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, was under threat of schism as a worldwide communion, as a worldwide church. Yet, through prayer, counsel, dialogue, and we'll be honest, yes, there were some backroom deals, we remained together. The church was one church until 1054, when the great schism occurred, the first dividing of the church in the east from the church in the west. Part of this had to do with one phrase that has been added to our creed. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The western church added by fiat the phrase, and the Son. In Greek, it's filioque. Um, it's the troublesome phrase. And they did this without consulting any of the church fathers in the East. What we must always remember is that at Nicaea, a patriarchy of five bishops was declared. And these five bishops are not rulers of a region like a king is a ruler over this region and is a rival with a king over that region, but rather they're colleagues 
who have oversight over their territory, but work together and work with others. The five, in order of foundation, are the bishops of Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, now modern-day Istanbul, and Rome. Four of these are found in the geographic east. Only one is found in the west, and that's the church in Rome. We occasionally pray for these five when we say, when we say together Eucharistic prayer deed. And we must always remember that these churches were founded in the beginning of the Christian era. And not only were they founded then, 2,000 years ago, but they're still here. Those churches are still here, unbroken through all that time, and they are still active. But power corrupts. And eventually Rome tried to claim supremacy over the other four by virtue of St. Peter's bones being buried now underneath the Vatican. And that's a much longer story that we could spend a lot more time on, but we won't right now. And so when Rome inserted the clause and the Son into the creed, they did it without counsel being held. Things eventually came to a head in 1054 with Rome excommunicating the Bishop of Constantinople and in retaliation, the other four churches in the East returned the favor to Rome and excommunicated the entire Western church. And once one schism happens, more eventually follows. The church was truly one and Catholic for over a thousand years. Then, in 1517, 463 later, 63 years later, another schism in the West began when monk and scholar Martin Luther nailed 95 questions to be answered to a door in Wittenberg. And then there was the English Reformation. And then there was the Separatists. And then there was the Calvinists. And then eventually we come to today where our own Episcopal Church is experiencing fractures of quite the same nature. In some denominations, one church member gets angry at another church member, and instead of reconciling, they just form a whole new church. And throughout the history of the Christian church, I wonder what would have happened if this passage and another from the Gospel according to St. John, when Jesus prays that they all may be one, and if the letters to the seven churches in Revelation were taken seriously, taken as part of our primary focus in relating to each other as one church, but separate church entities. Now, there is a word that I've used a few times this morning, and all of us are going to say the word when we recite the creed, and the word is Catholic. Catholic is a perfectly good word. Catholic is a word that describes what the church is, not what a denomination calls itself. But a misunderstanding of the word has occurred that needs to begin to be put to rest. Catholic is sometimes said to mean universal, and that is true to an extent. 
in that it be, can become an adjective to describe something as universal, as in her tastes are Catholic, her, her tastes are universal. Catholic has a different meaning, though, when we talk about the church, and it is according to the whole. That might not seem like, a, like much, but here's the significance. In Greek, which is the language that the Nicene Creed was written in, Catholic is like one of our compound words. It's two words that have been smushed together, and it comprises of the words kata and holos. Kata means according to. And it's the same word that greets each of the four Gospels when you read the New Testament in Greek. Kata Marcus, kata Lucas. And that is why we proclaim, as we did just a few minutes ago, when we read the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to kata, in this case, Matthew today. It isn't Matthew's gospel. It's Jesus' gospel as received from and given to us according to St. Matthew. Holos or holikos is where we get the word holistic, like holistic medicine that takes the entire body into account. Or even our English word whole, as in she wants to eat the whole pie. So when we say we are Catholic, what we are saying is that we believe in what has been received from the apostles, from the Holy Scriptures, from the patristic fathers. Everything that was according to the whole church in council prior to the great schism of 1054, we hold those things to be true and believe that they speak the truth to us. We are Catholic. We are part of the Catholic Church. We are just not Roman, Roman Catholic in our beliefs. This is part of the reason why it is very dangerous for different denominations and different factions and different dioceses and different parishes to go and do their own thing willy-nilly without regards for others in communion with them or without the knowledge of how the church came to the decisions which she made in ancient times. If the teaching is a new teaching, and I'll give you an example, the teaching about the rapture, then the teaching might be a little suspect. In our prayers, we pray for the unity that St. Paul was imploring to be restored. Some of the prayers of the people even echo the words of Jesus' high priest prayer with our response, that we all may be one. Any denomination, any parish church, any one who thinks that they hold the monopoly on the truth of the gospel is seriously wrong. We can only understand Christ's love for us when we bring our fellow Christians into fellowship with us and tell them why we think this and listen, listen as to why they think that. But we all must be doing all of our work as the one church, all of our teaching, all of our study, 
all of our dialogue with fellow Christians within the context of prayer. And it is something to remember, especially this week, as we celebrate Christian unity this week. It, end, it began last Wednesday, and it ends this Wednesday. Let us always do our utmost to ensure that this parish answers the question, to whom do we belong? With the answer, we belong to Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.